You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And music. It shouldn't be surprising that a podcast about getting things wrong sometimes gets things wrong. Honestly, and this is going to sound like I'm being smarmy, but I really mean it. I think I should make more mistakes than I do. I don't think that fewer errors correlates to greater accuracy. I suspect it means either that I'm screwing up without knowing it, or that I'm sticking too closely to the safe shallows. If you're not taking big swings, you're probably not going to make a lot of big hits. So it makes me a bit ill at ease to consider that most of my flubs, or the ones I know of at least, are annoying and embarrassing typos, malapropisms, and scuffings of dates, names, and other minutiae, which, don't get me wrong, drive me crazy, but don't actually materially impact the stories very much. Back in one of the very first episodes I ever produced, I tried to rattle off prime numbers off the top of my head and fuck them up right out of the gate. Later on, I tried to correct the list and managed to get it wrong again. Mispronunciations? Oh my, yes. I got an email from an old Pittsburghian friend years ago after telling the story of a baldness epidemic in Pennsylvania, in which I called the town at play kittening instead of kittanning over and over and over again. It took me at least three episodes worth of follies before I finally got acceptably close to pronouncing Worcester. One of my otherwise favorite stories, the airship, is almost irreparably marred by that. And everybody knows my true arch nemesis isn't actually Aristotle, but the French language. I'm particularly galled by a mortifying mistake I made a few episodes back in Do You Think He Saw Us, in which I replaced the word ellipsis with ellipse over and over and over again. How? How did I do that? I think it had to do with listening to too many January 6th hearings with all the talk of the speech at the ellipse, but man, I mean, you gotta remember that I not only had to write the word wrong and then say the word wrong, but also listen to myself say the word wrong repeatedly without catching on. But as soon as the episode dropped and I queued it up to make sure everything sounded right, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Just infuriating. When it comes to material factual errors, I've made, to my knowledge at least, far fewer. I can't remember the context now, but at some point I made reference to the Spanish Armada in a story set well after the Spanish Armada had been destroyed. I've been reckless in my characterization of the European Dark Ages. I once called St. Paul a Gentile, where I meant to say Pharisee. I've made two whoopsies large enough that I ended up issuing corrections, one for mischaracterizing the theory of telegeny, and another for saying that Jefferson had voted against his own anti-slavery bill. Oh, and then there was the other thing. 
fact. One time, I told the story of a submarine found at the bottom of the Chicago River in 1915. A largely forgotten historical mystery that intertwined with all sorts of people and ideas and events from the 19th and early 20th century. I presented more than a dozen theories for who could have built it, and how it ended up where it did, and debunked them one by one. Then I took a big swing. I solved the mystery of the fool killer for all the world to hear. But it turns out, I was wrong. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. And I'm Mark Chrysler, the wrong getter. Two and a half years ago, I released a five-part series on The Fool Killer, a series that I've held until very recently to be maybe my proudest achievement. I believe my argument for the origin of the submarine was comprehensive, detailed, and persuasive. And most everyone else believed so, too. Hell, if you Google Lewis Gathman right now, you will find him credited as the inventor of the Fool Killer right there on his Wikipedia page. But, alas, I have learned in recent weeks that Lewis Gathman did not invent the Fool Killer. I can tell you that now with, well, I don't know, not 100% confidence, but very close. I can also tell you with about the same degree of confidence who did build the Fool Killer. I'm not gonna, though. <laughs> not yet. While I now know the who and the what and the why and the where, I'm still trying to nail down the how and the when, and there are a lot of gaps I'm trying my best to fill in. If you haven't listened to the Fool Killer series, I'd recommend going back and doing so. But if you have, or if you don't have time to digest all six plus hours of it, then here's what I've got for you. Over the course of this episode, I am going to recap the whole thing to remind you of how we got here. And then in two weeks, I will present to you my new findings. I'm hoping that the extra time will be enough for me to batten down all the details. That's what I'm hoping. But honestly, I, I pretty much doubt it. Regardless, in two weeks time, I will lay out for you what I have and what I think about it. And if the picture is still not complete, then meh then I'll probably end up asking for your help in putting this story to bed for real and forever. For now, let's take a look back at what we know about Chicago's enigmatic, sunken submarine. Today's episode, The Fool Killer Part 6, Might Solve a Mystery. The mystery of the Fool Killer began November 23, 1915, when a local diver by the name of William Frenchie Deneau stubbed his toe against a piece of metal at the bottom of the Chicago River, in the middle of the city's downtown, while laying electric cable for ComEd. Frenchie was a bit of a local celebrity, and more than a bit of a local eccentric. He'd had an unsuccessful career as a semi-professional baseball player before taking up diving, and after World War I, he'd go on to try to sell the Navy a life vest of his own invention. But his big claim to fame had occurred just two months before the toe-stubbing incident, when a Great Lakes passenger ship called the SS Eastland had capsized, while still at its dock, along the Chicago River. The Eastland was filled up with employees from a Western Electric factory who were on their way to the annual company picnic in Michigan City, Indiana, when it toppled over. 
844 people were drowned, most of them within minutes, right there in the middle of one of the largest cities in the world and in just 20 feet of water. Frenchie's involvement with the Eastland disaster was twofold. For starters, he was one of the rescue divers on the scene, recovering bodies from the river and searching within the hull of the sideways ship. Afterwards, Frenchie gave himself a couple of nicknames. He called himself Captain, although he was not, and he described himself as the Hero of the Eastland, claiming at various times that he had personally recovered between 100 and 250 victims, which was sheer hyperbole. That wasn't the end of his time with the Eastland. When the ship's owners were charged with negligence, their attorney, the famous Clarence Darrow, hired Frenchie to go back to the wreck site. Darrow was working under a theory that the city was responsible for the Eastland disaster, that they'd failed to clear some old pilings under the river which the Eastland had toppled over. Frenchie returned from his diving bell expedition of the dock with proof. Not only did he personally attest to seeing the pilings, but he even brought a piece of one back up with him. Except that it was a fraud. The prosecution proved that there were no such pilings at the site and insinuated, probably correctly, that Frenchie had dragged a piece of wood from elsewhere in the river to try to earn his pay from Darrow. The point of all this being that Captain William Frenchie Deneau was a liar, a fabulist, an opportunist. Nevertheless, in November of 1915, he did stub his toe against a piece of metal at the bottom of the river. Upon striking it, he knelt down to feel for the object and immediately realized it was a long steel fuselage in the shape of a zeppelin, he said. When he surfaced, he reportedly told his crew, a man ought to get extra pay when he has to run the risk of submarines every time he dives, oughtn't he? As the discoverer, Frenchie applied for salvage rights to the object, and on January 15, 1916, with river traffic cleared for the winter, he went about raising it from the riverbed. The thing he had called a submarine certainly looked the part. It was a 40-foot-long steel tube with glass portholes running down either side. The fore section ended with a big, conical tip, while the rear was flat, like someone had cut straight down. On top, there was a small conning tower ringed with windows just big enough for someone, presumably the pilot, to stick their head in and look out while driving. And running the length of the top section was something like a small deck, big enough for people to stand on, perhaps. To get it out of the water, the salvage team had cracked a hole in the cone and run a crane hook through it. But otherwise, there was no known sign of damage, no clear reason why the vessel should have sunk. Once it was pulled up, Frenchie claimed, and I should emphasize, he claimed to make a gruesome discovery. Inside were the remains of a human and a dog. While the rest of the story of Raising the Fool Killer isn't in doubt, the remains very much are. Frenchie offered no further description of their condition, no indication of how complete or incomplete they were. Papers said that they would be sent for investigation, but if they were, nobody ever wrote anything about it. It seems likely to me that Frenchie planted them, or even that he didn't do that. He might have just lied and said he'd found bones in the boat to get more attention without ever producing them. By the end of my initial search into the origins of the Fool Killer, I was relatively convinced that that's what happened, that the remains were purely an invention of the reliably unreliable Frenchie to know. Now, mm, well, now I'm not as sure. What I am sure of is what happened next. 
Now in possession of a priceless, enigmatic maritime artifact, Frenchie Deneau parked the submarine at a skee-ball arcade on South State Street, where he charged 10 cents a gander. By May, it seems he'd burned through the profit potential of this setup, and he either sold or rented the Fool Killer to Charles W. Parker, a ringmaster who displayed it at circuses around Illinois and Iowa as the world's first submarine, quote-unquote. In just a couple months, it returned to Chicago, where it was put up as an attraction at Riverview Amusement Park, the city's answer to New York's Coney Island. And then it just disappears. It might have stayed at Riverview, or it might have gone back on the road with Parker's greatest shows. But if so, nobody talked about it. The United States entered World War I in the spring of 1917. My best guess is that wherever the Fool Killer was by then, somebody decided to scrap it for the war effort. Or else it just rusted out in a barn or a warehouse somewhere. Regardless, it was never seen again, and I don't expect it ever will be. The real question, though, wasn't where it ended up, but where it had come from. In the months following its discovery, there were three prominent theories. The first was that the whole thing was a sham, that Frenchie hadn't just faked the bodies, but the whole boat, which was the sort of thing you might expect from that rascal had he the means to do it, which he definitely did not. The second theory was that the sub was part of a failed German attack on Chicago. While America had not yet entered World War I at the time, the United States had made no secret of its allegiance. Officially neutral, the country nevertheless supported the United Kingdom with constant convoys of supplies. Everybody understood that at some point, America was bound to get off the sidelines, including Germany, who did in fact have a number of plans for preemptive attacks. But, of course, sending a submarine all the way across the Atlantic through the St. Lawrence Seaway and down the length of Lake Michigan to attack Chicago was not one of them, and German U-boats looked nothing like the thing Frenchie smacked into. The third theory was the one that Frenchie and most of the press subscribed to, and it's how the boat got that extremely catchy name, Fool Killer. Peter Nissen or as I originally mispronounced it, getting things wrong, Neeson was a Danish immigrant who came to Chicago in 1879. He worked for a while as a, quote, maker of fine instruments before getting into accounting. In 1892, he opened Nissen's Business College in the River West neighborhood, where he taught business, accounting, and English to other immigrants. The college only lasted three years, after which Peter Nissen became the bookkeeper for a small cabinet company where he worked for the rest of his life. On paper, Peter Nissen looks like a responsible, sober, maybe even boring citizen. But that's only if you don't know his other name, the one I didn't mispronounce, Mr. Bowser. In his spare time, the otherwise mild-mannered Peter Nissen had a bizarre hobby building wild experimental boats and dangerously testing them under his alter ego, Mr. Bowser. His first boat was a 20-foot-long pedal-powered kayak made of wood and iron that he used to clumsily navigate the Niagara Rapids on June 10, 1900. A year and a half later, he returned to Niagara to run the rapids again. This time, he'd built a much stranger boat. It was longer than the first, but also more narrow, it was less wood, more iron. Unlike the open-air kayak, the second was fully enclosed with little portholes running down its sides. And Mr. Bowser had changed out pedal power for a steam engine, 
with a big old smokestack rising out of the stern section. Wide World magazine called it the smallest decked steamer in the world. It looked quite a lot like the thing Frenchie Deneau had pulled out of the Chicago River. It had a similar conical tip, similar portholes, and just generally appeared fairly submarine-like. So, Frenchie, along with newspapers around the country, presumed that it must have been built by the same guy, Peter Nissen. Peter Nissen had called his first two boats Fool Killer and Fool Killer Two. So naturally, everybody took to calling Frenchie's submarine Fool Killer Three. Which is a curious mistake, because there had already been a Fool Killer Three, and it was definitely not a submarine. In 1904, Mr. Bowser had once again broken out from within the pedestrian flesh prison that was Peter Nissen. This time, instead of running the Niagara Rapids, he had a more audacious plan, to reach the North Pole. To do it, he constructed a conveyance that made the first two fool killers look downright conventional. It was to be a colossal canvas bag, 115 feet long, 75 feet in diameter, inflated into an oblate spheroid roughly the height of a six-story building. A long, thick axle would run through the balloon at its equator, with an enclosed car hanging from it that would hold the expedition crew. Nissen's thought was that the Fool Killer 3 would solve the biggest problem facing Arctic explorers, how to easily transition between crossing water and crossing ice. The gigantic tumbling ball could, theoretically, do both, blown by the wind when winds were favorable and steered by shifting the car back and forth along the axle. Nissen first built a small model with a balloon just five feet tall, which he tested, he thought, successfully. So next, he built a human-scale version, 35 feet long and 15 feet in diameter. The canvas bag had portholes built into its sides to give the rider some loose sense of bearings. That rider would be none other than Mr. Bowser himself, who would sit in a seat hung from the axle, which he hoped he could pilot back and forth to pivot the ball. Perhaps the greatest sign of Nissen's foolish optimism was the hammock, which swung beneath the seat for him to take naps in during the easy, stressless careening of his gigantic aimless balloon over 40 miles of open water. Because that was the test. After a couple of short runs along the beach, Mr. Bowser decided the Fool Killer 3 was ready for action and set out to cross Lake Michigan. are photos from the day, and they are among my favorite images ever captured, of a small crowd of curious looky-loos staring out from Chicago's Oak Street Beach at the strange alien ball quickly disappearing over the horizon. He left Chicago on November 29, 1904, under gale force winds. When he reached the other side is anybody's guess, but he didn't land in Michigan City. On the morning of December 1st, Sophie Kohler found long shreds of canvas strewn across the shores of Stevensville, Michigan, and thrown clear from the wreckage was Peter Nissen, a.k.a. Mr. Bowser, cold and dead. His family believed that he had made the trip successfully, cut his way out of the balloon, and then died of a combination of exhaustion and exposure. More probably, the air hose broke, or became waterlogged, and Peter Nissen suffocated to death somewhere along the way, with the wind carrying the fool killer end over end for hours and miles, with the limp corpse of Mr. Bowser tumbling around inside it. 
Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. See? See? I told you last time that I'd gotten stuck thinking about a problem instead of its solution, and here we are at the stupid submarine again. It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when faced with a challenge in your life, but when you learn how to find your own solutions, there's no better feeling. A therapist can help you become a better problem solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. Without therapy, I might have still realized I was wrong about the fool killer, but I certainly wouldn't have taken it as well. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists anytime. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash the constant to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. When you're hiring, you're supposed to leave no stone unturned. But how do you actually do that? Easy. Partner with one powerful stone turner. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills, when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. And here's another great thing. You don't have to make your candidates jump through hoops. With Indeed's virtual interview tools, there's nothing to download. Just click and talk. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in their database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash The Constant to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash The Constant. Indeed.com slash The Constant. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We can't know for sure how the humble accountant with the superhero secret Peter Nissen died, but what we do know is that he didn't build the fool killer Frenchie Deneau found. So, who did? It seems like it should be easy to work out. All you need to do is figure out who was building submarines in or around Chicago sometime before 1915. How many people could fit that bill, right? As it turns out, a lot. In 1861, the Union Navy had constructed the USS Alligator, which hit bad weather before ever seeing service, and sunk off Cape Hatteras in 1863. The Confederate Navy also built a submarine, the CSS Hunley, which foundered twice before successfully sinking the USS Housatonic with an explosive spear, which also sank the Hunley for the third and final time. After the Union won the Civil War, their interest in submarines died most violently and they refused to even entertain the notion of building any more of the damned things. But then Europe began to build their own and the US changed their tune. In 1887, they put up the first of several prizes to whomever could bring the American Navy a working submarine. And the contestants for those prizes provide us with the lion's share of our suspects. 
In one of my favorite odd couple pairings of all time, a pacifist Anglican minister named George Garrett teamed up with a Swedish arms dealer named Thorsten Nordefeldt in hopes of building a submarine for the US Navy, but they were turned down and ended up producing submarines instead for Greece and Turkey to use against one another. Neither did, and all Nordenfeldt boats ended up sunk in the Mediterranean. After that, the mismatched partners went their separate ways. Garrett bought a farm in Florida, which he promptly bankrupted, but Nordenfeld kept at submarines. He offered the Nordenfeld 4 to the Navy Commission in 1887, but they turned it down. Nordenfeld sold it to Russia instead. On its way there from England, it became unsteady and had to be cut from its toe. It ran aground in Jutland, where it stayed. Nordenfeld tried to get the Russians to pay for it anyway, but they quite reasonably refused, and with that, Nordenfeld got out of the submarine business and back into arms dealing. He built machine guns for a few years until, like Garrett's farm, his company went bankrupt. Neither of them made boats that could have ended up in Chicago. Josiah Tuck, who called himself Professor the same way that Frenchie called himself Captain, made a fortune in the 1849 California Gold Rush, and then proceeded to spend it building a series of terrifyingly impractical submarines, which he called Peacemakers. The first one had to be piloted from the outside by a man wearing a diving helmet and sitting in a saddle-like divot on top of the boat. On its first test, the captain, John Rich, blacked out just feet from the launch, collapsing on top of his air hose and had to be hospitalized for several weeks. Tuck's second peacemaker solved the you have to ride it from the outside issue, but traded it in for another. To get around the heat of a normal engine, he decided to power Peacemaker 2 chemically. The engine was stocked with lye, to which water would slowly be applied to power it. After a couple failed attempts at getting Peacemaker 2 onto the Hudson River, his family intervened, afraid he was wasting their inheritance. They had Tuck committed, and his boats were sold to his bank to recoup debt and broken up for scrap. That's a no on Tuck. The third competitor for the Navy Prize was Simon Lake, the son of a foundry owner in Pleasantville, New Jersey. Lake had a few false starts and oddball prototypes in the submarine business, including a boat called the Argonaut Jr., which looked like a child's drawing of a pirate ship and rolled around the ocean bed on wheels propelled by the wagging legs of the pilot walking around on the seafloor like a subnautical Flintstones car. But eventually, he became one of the first quasi-successful submarine makers in the world. He built some semi-effective military submarines, which he sold to Russia, Austria, Germany, and eventually, the United States. But eventually is key. America rejected his designs for years, well after the Navy contest, and none of them ever operated anywhere near the Great Lakes. Not to mention, they look nothing like our fool killer. George Baker was a Civil War hero who got rich manufacturing barbed wire, and then, like Simon Lake, foolhardily spent that fortune pursuing submarines. His Baker boat was built and tested on the Rouge River in Detroit before he brought it down to Chicago in time for the 1893 World's Fair for a demonstration to the Navy Commission. But out on Lake Michigan, it sprung several leaks and had to be towed back into shore. Baker shoved off for Washington, D.C. to try to spin a win out of his failure, lobbying Congress and whatever civil servants he could find to give him the prize. While out glad-handing around the beltway, his appendix burst, and he died. His widow, Mary, sold all the inner workings of his boat, then had the empty husk towed out to the middle of Lake Michigan, filled with sand, and sunk. Not 
the Fool Killer. The U.S. government held its submarine contest three times in 1887, 1888, and 1893, and each time came up with the same winner, John Philip Holland, the father of the modern military submarine. And each time, they refused to pay out. Eventually, though, America came to its senses and gave Holland his due, mainly because he threatened to take his boats to the country's enemies if it didn't. He ended up producing the first actual useful American military submarine, sorry USS Alligator, the USS Holland, and many more besides. The Holland-class submarine was the United States' go-to underwater boat well into the 20th century. None of those could have possibly been the fool killer, unfortunately, since they were all exclusively deployed in salt water, and being U.S. government property, couldn't have just gone missing without anyone saying boo about it. But that doesn't mean we can rule Holland out just yet. See, John Philip Holland was an Irish emigre and sympathetic to the cause of Irish independence. And before he started entering contests to build submarines for the United States, he built one for a group of radical Irish-American nationalists known as the Fenian Brotherhood. The Fenian Brotherhood was a secret group hell-bent on Irish independence, and they had a wild plan for getting it. A head-on conflict between Ireland and the United Kingdom was hopeless. But across the ocean, things were potentially different. In contrast to Great Britain, Canada was a sparsely populated and ill-defended area. And just south of the border was the United States, where there were not only tons of Irish immigrants, but tons of battle-hardened Irish immigrants who just cut their teeth in the American Civil War. The Fenians supposed they could train up that already trained fighting force and invade Canada, potentially holding it captive or otherwise just putting the hurt on the poor Canucks until Queen Victoria was forced to come to the negotiating table and give over Ireland in exchange. The Fenians did, in fact, launch multiple incursions into Canada, but with less sterling results than they anticipated, mainly undone by the Secret Brotherhood's chronic inability to keep a secret, they failed time and again until the United States finally decided to put an end to things. But before that, they had hired John Holland to build them a fleet of submarines, which Fenian raiders would pilot through the Great Lakes and lay siege to Canadian ports. And one of the main launch points for the secret submarine attack would be Chicago. Intriguing as that sounds, the Fool Killer was not an artifact of an abortive Canadian invasion. John Holland did build a submarine for his fellow Irish nationals. He called it the Fenian Ram, and at the time of its construction in 1881, it was far and away the most advanced and successful sub in the world. But it wasn't done. After successful tests, Holland wanted to improve it, and the Fenians grew impatient. In 1883, they broke into Holland's moorings in Patterson, New Jersey, and stole the Fenian ram. Under cover of night, they hooked it to a tugboat and towed it out to New Haven, Connecticut, where they promptly realized that none of them knew how to drive the thing. So they returned to Holland and asked him if he would be so kind as to teach them how to pilot the thing they'd just stolen from him. He said no. Back at New Haven, the Fenians tried to take the ram out on the water, but each attempt ended in perilous failure, and eventually the harbormaster told them they had to leave before they hurt somebody. The Fenian ram was moved to a warehouse, where it sat unused for 33 years. 
1916, the Fenian Brotherhood's successor group, Clonagall, brought the ram out of mothballs and put it on display at Madison Square Gardens. Today, it's open for public view at the Patterson Museum in Patterson, New Jersey. Not even slightly the fool killer. That's it for the Navy Prize contestants, and not a one of them has even the slightest chance of being our submarine builder. Beyond Garrett, Nordenfeld, Tuck, Lake, Baker, and Holland, there are only two known makers of submarines who were working anywhere around the Great Lakes before 1915. The first is Richard Raditz, a whiz kid autodidact out of the lakeside city of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, who inexplicably got a wild hair and started building a submarine one day out of old barrels, railroad ties, and a bicycle pump. His first prototype sank when he smashed it into a piling, barely managing to survive with his life as the overlarge windows shattered and the Fox River came pouring in. But he got right back on the horse. He completed a second sub called the Raditz Boat in 1895 or 1896, and if reports are to be believed, it was one of the most impressive feats of nautical engineering in the whole century. It was built fully of steel and powered by two separate power sources, a kerosene engine for the surface and a clean, cool electric engine for when it submerged. It was the first time anybody had ever thought of that, but most submarines down through today use the same trick. He also developed some sort of air filtration system, which supposedly worked. If so, it was the first one of those, too. The boat started off as a 35-foot-long tube with conical points on either end, not totally unlike our fool killer, but from there, Raditz tinkered and amended. Eventually, he extended its length to 65 feet, doubled the electrical output, and replaced the kerosene engine with diesel. Ritchie sold his Raditz boat to a consortium of investors out of Milwaukee and relocated there to test his sub on the larger waters of Lake Michigan. He claimed that he got her up to 14 miles per hour and 500 feet deep, and while I doubt either of those things is true, it's clear that Ritchie Raditz of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, had succeeded in building one of the most advanced, if not the most advanced, submarine of his time, all by himself. Not that it did him much good. <laughs> It seems his investors didn't know what to do with the sub. It wasn't clear how you could make money from such a thing. Raditz tried for a season to give underwater tours of Lake Michigan, but apparently that didn't provide the kind of income necessary. So the Raditz boat was pulled out into dry dock in the winter of 1899, and it never went back in the water. It rusted away there for the next six years until it was broken up and sold by the piece. Rumor has it that John Holland bought the lion's share. Raditz told the people of Wisconsin that he wasn't done, that he'd be back with another submarine, a better submarine, soon. But he told his new wife, Anna, the opposite. She didn't like him going underwater. She feared one day he wouldn't come back up. She begged him to stop. And he did. They lived together in Milwaukee for the rest of their lives, with Raditz working as an engineer for a local machine maker. He died there in 1933. He did not build the fool killer. Before I began my obsessive quest into the origins of the Fool Killer, only a very small handful of people had publicly tried to address it, and pretty much everyone who did landed on the same answer. Laudner Dervantes Phillips. The theory goes back to a book published in 1982 by Michigan City historian Patricia A. Gruce Harris, entitled, tellingly, The Great Lakes' First Submarine, L.D. Phillips' Fool Killer. It was, 
to be straight with you, not a great theory. Uh, but it was the best one out there, so most people who became interested in the mystery managed to satisfy themselves with it as best they could. What Laudner Phillips' tale lacks in credibility, it makes up for in outrageousness. In contrast to the other known and discarded subjects who were mostly working in the 1880s and later, Laudner Phillips built his first submarine all the way back in 1845, which is just astonishingly early. That first boat, called the Whitefish, was hardly a boat at all. It was more like a watertight barrel buttressed with copper plates and built to crawl along the bottom by means of a long stick that stuck out of it. Not clear how that would work. It collapsed in just 12 feet of water in a Michigan City, Indiana Creek at the mouth of Lake Michigan. At least that's the story told half a century later by Laudner's great nephew, Addison Phillips which is what I mean by lacking credibility. Very little of Laudner Darvantes Phillips' life or work is recorded independently or contemporaneously. The lion's share comes from oral family histories taken way after his death. What we do know is that he was born in Parrington, New York in 1825, and that he later moved to Michigan City, Indiana, where he opened a shoe factory in 1842. We know that throughout his life, he continuously accrued large debts he was unable to pay off, and that on several occasions he moved around the region, probably to avoid his creditors. And while we don't know for sure about the whitefish, we do know that he did build a larger, more submarine-y submarine several years later. He called it the Marine Cigar, which is approximately what it looked like. It was a long tube, depending on the source, it ran between 40 and 85 feet, with sharp, pointy cones at either end. It was powered by a two-person hand crank, which Phillips claimed, rather fantastically, could propel it at four and a half knots. In 1852, the steamships SS Atlantic and SS Ogdensburg collided in Lake Erie. At first, it looked like nothing more than a fender bender, and the two got back under steam after whatever the 19th century maritime equivalent of an insurance exchange looked like. But soon, the Atlantic realized it was taking on water, and the Ogdensburg heard the screams of passengers in the distance. It raced back to the site and managed to rescue several hundred people, but several hundred more were lost as the Atlantic sunk to the bottom of the lake, 165 feet below. More than passengers, the Atlantic had also been stuffed with gold bullion, which made it an irresistible target for salvagers. But in 1852, there was no way to retrieve anything from so deep. American Express hired a diver to find the safe, but something went wrong and the diver ended up spending a year in the hospital recovering from the bends. We can confirm the existence of Laudner Phillips' marine cigar because it was the brunt of an audacious effort to get the Atlantic's gold, a fact that's independently corroborated by several witnesses and newspaper reports. We can also confidently rule out the marine cigar as our fool killer because during that audacious effort, it sunk. Whether or not Phillips ever got a replacement built is unclear, but doubtful. He did try to sell the concept of his submarine to several governments, but none of them took him up on it. Probably they were at least a bit skeptical of his ability to deliver. He said he could make a submarine that could stay underwater for a week, reach depths of 100 feet, and shoot 100-pound torpedoes with ease, all of which would have been obviously impossible to anyone with a passing knowledge of the state of technology at the time. 
There was another reason they declined, too. The navies of the world in the late 1850s and early 1860s simply didn't like the idea of a submarine. In 1862, Phillips wrote a letter to William Graham of the Union Navy offering to build an attack submarine with the rough specifications of the Marine Cigar to help win the Civil War. Graham wrote back, brusquely, saying, The boats used by the Navy go on and not under the water. Phillips' letter to Graham represents the closest thing to real evidence for him being the builder of the Fool Killer. In it, Phillips desperately tries to convey himself as an authority on submarine matters, which means talking about the subs he'd built. In addition to the Marine Cigar, he also notes that he built another boat back in 1847. What happened to it, he doesn't say. But records attest that, in one of his many attempts to evade creditors, Phillips had packed up his family in 1845 and moved to Chicago. It's not much! <laughs> but it puts Phillips theoretically in Chicago at the theoretical time he theoretically built a theoretical submarine. Compared to every other long-shot possibility covered, that made Phillips the most likely builder of the Fool Killer. But the theory doesn't work for a whole lot of reasons. At the time Phillips hypothetically built his Chicago submarine, the Chicago River was a shallow, muddy marsh. The Illinois-Michigan Canal, which turned it into a major waterway, wouldn't be completed until 1848. And even after that, it would take decades of engineering to turn it into the river it was in 1915, when Frenchy Deneau found the Fool Killer. Not to mention that the one boat we know Laudner Phillips built didn't look much like the Fool Killer. The Marine Cigar was pointy on either end, the tips were extremely sharp, whereas the Fool Killer had only one cone at the front which was far more rounded and blunt. The Marine Cigar had very different portholes, no conning tower, and the whole length of the boat was tapered, whereas the Fool Killer was a solid, steady column, keeping the same diameter from its rear up to the nose. More critically, the Fool Killer was made of steel, while the Marine Cigar was wooden. It had to be, because Henry Bessemer didn't discover the process for mass-producing steel until 1856, and the Bessemer process wasn't adopted widely in the United States until after 1862. He could not have built the Fool Killer. But then who? With every known and semi-known submarine builder of the correct time and place ruled out, what possibilities were left? That's where I tripped onto the scene. There's only one notification out there that you want to leave your sound on for. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether your thing is vintage teas or recipes for ghee, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll create an online store in your vibe, discover new customers, and grow the following that keeps them coming back. Shopify has all the sales channels sorted so your business keeps growing from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. 
even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free libraries full of educational content, Shopify's got you every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you will too. Shopify makes selling simple, so you can put yourself and your ideas out there. Whether your thing is making ebooks or earrings, Shopify makes your success possible. When you're ready to launch your thing into the spotlight, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform backing millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Go on, try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash the constant. Go to shopify.com slash the constant to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash the constant. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. It's been something like five years since I first started playing Amateur Detective about the Fool Killer. I was attracted to it for a lot of reasons. I like submarines, for one, and Chicago, too. But it also seemed to me to be a perfect mystery. Most of history is made of holes. If you randomly choose a time and place, the odds are that we have no idea what was happening there. What any given person was doing on any given day is usually unknown. The Fool Killer is a hole, too, but unlike most holes, it has a really particular shape. You can almost see what would fit into it. It has temporal bounds. 
it couldn't have been built any later than 1915 because Frenchy found it then. But probably it had to go back sometime before then because a 40-foot-long steel submarine is a conspicuous thing to build, and when someone builds one, it's going to draw some attention. If the Fool Killer had only been completed or sunk a few years before its rediscovery, it seems like someone would have remembered what it was and where it came from. So, in all likelihood, it must have dated back a ways. But it couldn't have been too long before that, because the Chicago River is just way too heavily trafficked and engineered. At the very earliest, it could have sunk in 1871, after the first attempt to reverse the river, but probably it would have happened later than that, somewhere around the turn of the century. A 40-foot-long steel submarine would also be a very expensive thing to build, so whoever was behind it, they had to have some serious cash flow. They probably should have had some prominence in the community, and in all likelihood would have had a known interest in boats or else in some eccentric matters of invention. Perhaps the strangest angle of the Fool Killer Hole is that when it was discovered, nobody came forward. Not only was there no one around to identify it, but no one around to claim it either. I've thought a lot about why that might have been over the years. The simplest answer is that whoever had a hand in building the Fool Killer was dead by the time it showed back up. Or if not dead, no longer living around Chicago, where the discovery of a quote-unquote ancient submarine got a fair amount of press, including photos and drawings. But it could also be that whoever built it was still around, just keeping their mouth shut. Maybe they were embarrassed of it for some reason, or concerned they'd be culpable for wrecking it. Or maybe... Just maybe, Frenchie really did find those remains inside, and the originator stayed quiet because speaking up would implicate them in a crime, maybe even a murder. Close to three years ago now, I found a possible puzzle piece for the Fool Killer Hole, and the more I examined it, the more precisely and snugly it seemed to fit. The name of that puzzle piece was Louis Gathman. He was born in 1844 in Hanover and immigrated to the United States in 1864 after supposedly studying engineering in Lundberg. He settled down for a very short time in Philadelphia but soon moved to Chicago where he somehow managed to move into a Lincoln Park mansion while working as a machinist at a local factory. I don't know how. In the background, he started moonlighting as an independent inventor, and that's probably how he afforded the mansion. His initial contraptions were all relatively sober-sounding machines made for farming and millery. It's not clear to me whether any of them actually did what Gathman claimed, but they were popular enough regardless to get him a small fortune. From the 1880s on, his inventions became more fantastic and more numerous. The Interocean newspaper said that he had more patents than any other individual in the whole country, which might not be strictly true, but the spirit is right. Most of his inventions were half-baked or worse, and it seems like he never was able to stick to a project long enough to see it through. And while there's no question he was a tireless inventor, he was an even more tireless promoter. He accompanied every new development with grand hyperbolic pronouncements about how he was going to change the world forever. The fascinating thing about Gathman, though, is that he wasn't just a windbag. Most of the things he said had at least a kernel of truth to them.
He once claimed to have discovered grass on the moon, and another time he claimed to have built a working helicopter airship, which I'm pretty sure never existed beyond some drawings. But other than those times, when Gathman said he was onto something, he at least partially was. He developed the first functional means for weather modification, or cloud seeding, for instance, fully 50 years before General Electric came upon, or potentially plagiarized, the same process. He created a new kind of telescope, the sectional lens telescope, which was, for a very brief window, the most advanced in the world. He made major strides in early solar energy production, but he got the scale of the issue way wrong and nothing ended up coming of it. Most famously, he invented a giant artillery cannon and an explosive shell to fire from it. The Gathman gun was tested by the United States Navy, who found it to be ineffective. But just a few years later, explosive shells very similar to his were deployed by the Japanese Navy in the Russo-Japanese War. And in World War I, Germany deployed the Big Bertha, a gigantic artillery cannon which was very similar to Gathman's. According to Gathman, and his family, and his business partners, these were not coincidences. He claimed that after the United States turned him down, he had sold his ideas to Germany and Japan. There is some reason to believe that could be true, but ultimately it's very hard to say. If he did sell his guns to Germany, he may also have sold them his submarine. He certainly does seem to have tried. Gathman patented his submarine vessel in 1897, and I became convinced, and possibly convinced you, that it was the Fool Killer. There was a lot of reason to think so. For one, Gathman's patent drawings look very much like the boat Frenchie found, except that Gathman's submarine torpedo boat was meant to be much bigger, 120 feet long. That full-sized boat, however, never got built. Instead, numerous sources attest that he completed a smaller model at his workshop, and that when German and other officials came snooping around looking to buy his inventions, he was able to take them on test drives around Lake Michigan. Then, this boat disappears. It's never heard from again. This is the perfect fool-killer-shaped hole. How did a submarine get built in Chicago without being noticed? It was noticed. Numerous newspaper articles were written about it. But then both Gathman and the press lost interest and moved on. By the time Frenchie announced his find in 1915, Gathman was an old man, living and almost dying in Washington, D.C. He was working on a final invention with his son, Emile, for the depth charges that would be deployed against German U-boats soon after. Emile, for his part, was in Baltimore, and Gathman's main business partner was in New York. Nobody who had worked on the submarine was left in Chicago to take notice. How it sunk without anyone noticing was the final jig to saw. It seemed likely to me that the best explanation for why nothing had been written about the sinking was because it hadn't, that Gathman had simply lost interest in his invention, as he always did, and that it had been left at his workshop to fall into disrepair. It ended up in the river because that's where it was moored, at Gathman's shop, which was located, potentially, near where the fool killer was later found. Everything fit right. So I wrote up the story, and recorded it, and produced it, and sent it off into the world. Then I sat back, basking in the glory. I mean, it was a pretty negligible amount of glory, since virtually nobody cared about what I had done except for me, and the listeners I had convinced to care. But that was something. 
It's probably the most accomplished I've ever felt. Ooh, gosh, that hurts. And I have returned to that feeling over the last two and a half years. I've replayed the stirring conclusion of the Fool Killer series like the vain egotist I'm afraid of being. I've considered writing the whole thing up into a book. I've thought on more than one occasion that when I die, it's likely that Solved the Mystery of a Forgotten Chicago Submarine would be written into my obituary. And I felt pretty good about that. The only problem was that I wanted more. The months and months of pouring over evidence, collecting facts, testing theories, not to mention getting to spin around on my heels and recite the answer, Hercule Poirot style. It was all so yummy. Over the last two years, I've wished repeatedly to have another mystery to solve, or that I could go back and resolve the fool killer. And now, perversely, I have to. Because about a month ago, a listener sent me an email containing two scanned pages from an old magazine. I had worked for years, poring over thousands of pages worth of patents, old newspapers, biographies, histories, and fire insurance maps. And here was a small, otherwise meaningless article, not more than a hundred words long, and in a minute, it undid all of that work. Well, not just an article. There was also a photograph, taken in 1906, of six children posed in their Sunday bests looking down at the camera from on top of the fool killer. Music for today's episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions, Epidemic Sound, and Lee Rosevere. This show is made possible by people like you who receive early ad-free and bonus episodes by supporting its making at patreon.com slash theconstant. Tell a friend, rate, review, all that good stuff. I will be back in two weeks to set this whole mess straight. Until then... From Chicago, Illinois, where Louis Gathman might have built a submarine in the 1890s, but not the one Frenchie Deneau discovered in 1915, this has been The Constant. <laughs>